The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. Just a quick break to recommend our recent sponsor's Book of the Month. Book of the Month makes reading better by offering members a few new book selections each month to help you cut through the noise, save time, and make it easier to decide what to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles and picks five to seven of the best new books for you to choose from. All of these books are good, so you really can't go wrong. Book of the Month helps readers like you and I find books that we wouldn't normally discover on our own. The cool part is selections largely focus on new and upcoming authors in multiple genres. Book of the Month also recently launched curated audiobooks, so members can get a hardcover or an audiobook each month, which you can then download and listen to right in the app. This month, I chose A Little Supernatural Fair in Murder Road by New York Times bestselling author Simone St. James. Described as the story of a young couple that find themselves haunted by a string of gruesome murders committed along an old deserted road in this terrifying new novel. Just go to bookofthemonth.com to pick your first book and join Book of the Month. That's bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can join and get that first book for just $9.99 with the code CHIRP. That's C-H-I-R-P. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com podcast. This week's show is sponsored by Neuro. Neuro makes functional gum and mints that help you better your mind and do more. It was launched by athletes with backgrounds in neuroscience and chemistry who imagined health supplements you could carry in your pocket and take on the go throughout the day. The great thing is these patented cold compressed gum and mints are gluten-free, sugar-free, vegan, and work a lot faster than drinks and supplements. They're loved by Olympians, engineers, academics, fitness heads, and creatives like you and me stuck at home, staring at the screen. The energy and focus products have been shown to improve brain performance in a pilot study out of the Harvard Innovation Lab. And the new Calm and Clarity line uses ingredients scientifically shown to reduce stress and stabilize mood. So just head over to getneuro.com to order and better your state of mind. That's G-E-T-N-E-U-R-O.com. Use the code WRITER to get 15% off your first order today. Getneuro.com. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that the Nazi scientists, at the end of that, and the end of the war, they they chose to surrender to the Americans because they wanted that technology to come to America and not to the Soviet Union. So, we instituted a secret program called Operation Paperclip, which brought all of these Nazi scientists to the United States, and it, this meant that they were not charged for war crimes and they were given uh, a new life here in the United States. But it was a Faustian bargain. You know, we, we said, give us the best rockets and the best missiles and the best airplanes, and we won't prosecute you for war crimes. Greetings, scribes, and welcome back to The Writer Files. I am still your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you prolificness, prosperity, and peace of mind, per usual. The award-winning author, poet, and Emmy nominee Patrick Hicks joined me this week to talk about his unique research process how stories choose their authors, and how to talk about the Holocaust. 
Patrick's the lauded author of over 10 books, including The Collector of Names, Adoptable, This London, and the critically acclaimed novel The Commandant of Lubezetsch. He's the writer in residence at Augustana University, as well as a faculty member at the MFA program at Sierra Nevada University. And Patrick has been published widely in literary journals, including Plowshares, Prairie Schooner, Guernica, The Utney Reader, and many others. His poetry has appeared on NPR, the PBS NewsHour, and American Life in Poetry. The Emmy-nominated writer also hosts a weekly radio broadcast, Poetry from Studio 47, that airs on NPR affiliates and South Dakota Public Broadcasting. In this file, Patrick and I discussed a roadmap to making a living as a writer, how he used grants to fund the research for his latest novel, note-taking and travel for historically accurate writing, what it's like to get blurbed by your heroes, the circularity and universality of the human condition across time, and why great writing should always be your end goal. Stay calm and write on. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. All right, we are rolling on The Writer Files once again. I have an esteemed guest. I'm hanging out with Patrick Hicks today. Thank you so much for taking the time to wrap with us about all things writing, the writing and research process, and uh, your latest work. What's uh, what's going on over there? Well, thank you for, so much for having me on on the show. I just so appreciate that, and uh, it's really wonderful to be at a stage with the book where it's out in the world and it's and it's finding readers. Because uh, as you know, you lay, we labor in solitude on a, a book project for so long, and it's an act <laughs> yeah. of faith. And you just hope that you're creating something that is going to be worthy of people's time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I do want to talk about this labor, this latest labor of love of yours. Um, but yeah, let's, as we do, um, wind back the clock, talk about your superhero origin story as an <laughs> award-winning author and um, quite a prolific author. But, you know, I understand that you kind of ride the line between fiction and, and poetry, um, of course, You've got this um, great NPR program where you feature um, some very talented poets. Let's let's talk about kind of where you found your your passion and your love of writing. And of course, you've got this uh, lauded academic career too. So talk a little bit about kind of how you got here. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I was either very fortunate or very cursed that um, I knew from a very early age I wanted to be a writer. You know, when I was seven or eight years old, I was creating horrible short stories but at the time I thought they were fantastic. Uh, and then, you know, I was always writing in high school and uh, in college as well, but, you know, I wasn't that open with it. You know, I didn't try publishing much because I guess I was still trying to find my voice and find craft and, and things like that. Um, so when it, when it came time for me to graduate from college, I realized, well, all right, how am I going to make a living? I mean, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but um, there's not a really clear roadmap for that in America. Um, for other professions, there is, but to be a writer is you just wander around in the darkness with a flashlight. So I decided that I really enjoyed college, and I thought, well, maybe I could become a college professor, and and I could teach creative writing. That way, uh, I would professionally be doing what I love, and I would also have the the um, academic and financial support that you need to to be a writer. 
So once I made that decision, it was pretty clear that I needed to get the master's degree and the PhD. And, and fortunately, it um, has all worked out. I've got my dream job and I, I, I love that I have the ability to write. And my whole day is focused on either my writing or helping the writing of college age students and graduate students. Yeah, that's a pretty cool story. Um, of course, you are a writer in residence at a university. So talk a little bit about what that um, distinguished title means. It means that I'm the public face of uh, the university when it comes to writing. And I'm, uh, it means that I'm going around to book festivals and things like this that other writers tend to do. But I'll write, say, um, an inaugural poem for the institution, or uh, um, I'm frequently on the media, you know, speaking with uh, about literary matters. Um, I've got the support of the institution uh, so that I can go go around and talk to people. And it's really pretty wonderful that I stumbled into the position of writer in residence because although my institution is 150 some odd years old now, I'm only the second writer in residence in its history. So hmm. I'm really grateful that I got the support of the institution. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, let's dig into um, the writing process and... This latest, it seems like, you know, obviously kind of a labor of love for you because it, it, it covers, um, or at least it touches on some subject matter that you've written about in the past and then combines it with kind of a, you know, obviously this interesting historical crossroads, but, um, talk about your latest in, in the shadow of Dora and kind of, um, how this how this fantastic book came to be. Uh, yeah, of, of course. And uh, it is a labor of love. I mean, it took me several years to write it. Um, but when my first novel came out, um, The Commandant of Lubezic, which is uh, about the Holocaust, um, and it's necessarily a very dark book. And it was my first novel, and I was really gratified to have finally achieved the, the lifelong dream of having a, a novel published by a really excellent press. Uh, and, you know, I toured that around, and in, in touring that around, it was really a challenge to talk about the Holocaust so much. So when I decided that my, um, that I was going to launch myself into another writing project, I thought, okay, this one is going to have more light to it. And uh, you're not going to write about the Holocaust. <laughs> but <laughs> um, that didn't quite work out that way. I'm, I'm a huge space nerd. I mean, I love, you know, the Apollo program and Mercury and Gemini. So I thought, well, maybe I could write something that takes place in, in Cape Kennedy and I could talk about the Apollo project. And, and the more I thought about that, you know, Kelton, the more I, I thought, well, okay, well, the Saturn V, that mighty rocket that took us to the moon, it started off as a, as a V2, which was um, the Nazi rocket. And, you know, the Nazis were the very first um, to put something into space. I mean, we don't think about it that way, but they fired that V2 straight up in the air and it went well beyond the threshold of space, um, which is defined at 60 miles straight up. And the more I thought about this, the more I thought, well, where those rockets were built in this secret underground Nazi concentration camp, maybe I could have a character that lived through that. And then hmm. um, he survived and then he, he starts to work on the Apollo program. But the men that are in charge of him in the Apollo program were his tormentors at this, um, at this camp called Dora Mittelbau. So once that realization hit me, in about 10 minutes, I was scribbling out the, the plot lines and, and I was off to the races. So I, I orbited back, pun intended, I suppose, to the, the, the Holocaust. So you're trying to inject, inject 
some lightness into this um, rather dark subject. But yeah, as you put, as you mentioned, the book covers some very interesting historical pieces that, you know, unless you are a, a complete space nerd, which, you know, I don't claim to be, but, you know, I did know some about that um, secretive uh, Nazi um, program. And there's some lore and even some kind of, you know, probably some, um, I don't, I don't want to say, you know, that they are conspiracy theories kind of about what happened. But there was, there was some very interesting, dark, odd connections between these uh, real-life programs. Yeah, and I don't think an awful lot of people uh, realize that. Um, the Nazi scientists that built the V2, which became this uh, it was a weapon of war that was launched at London and Amsterdam and, and, and Paris and, and killed an awful lot of people, but it was built by slave labor in the concentration camp of Dora Mittelbau. And a lot of people don't realize that the Nazi scientists, at the end of that, and the end of the war, they they chose to surrender to the Americans because they wanted that technology to come to America and not to the Soviet Union. So, we instituted a secret program called Operation Paperclip, which brought all of these Nazi scientists to the United States, and it, this meant that they were not charged for war crimes and they were given uh, a new life here in the United States. But it was a Faustian bargain. You know, we we said, give us the best rockets and the best missiles and the best airplanes, and we won't prosecute you for war crimes. And those men that came over, they were the ones that initiated our rocket program. And it was Werner von Braun is the most obvious name. Um, but there's Arthur Rudolph and um, Arthur Dornberger, and and these men created the the Saturn V. Uh, and without that rocket. I, I we just wouldn't have gotten to the moon. The Apollo program just would not exist if it wasn't for that mighty Saturn V, which still to this day is the most powerful rocket ever built. NASA is creating a rocket right now, which is going to edge it out. But um, that's pretty stunning to me that over 50 years after it was built, it's still the world's most powerful rocket. Yeah, it's crazy to think. Yeah, and as you put it, that Faustian bargain um, is absolutely the right way to describe it. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yeah, uh, you know, I think it was... Of course, Kennedy, right? Yeah. Who, who, who really dedicated um, a lot of our resources to getting to the moon. And then, um, of course, he was, I, I think, the first Catholic president. Um, he was. And uh, President Biden, our, our 46th president, also a Catholic president, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he is Catholic, yeah. yeah. I know that because I'm Catholic myself. 
Right. Okay. So, yeah. um, so it's very interesting, very circular, kind of interesting that we're that where we are today in, in the kind of the the um, in that the space program. I don't know if you would call it that, but you know, this kind of space command has been <laughs> has been um, kind of an interesting. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know where it is in its in its um, evolution, but it's it's kind of a, it's an interesting time right now. Um, for kind of space exploration, no? I, it, it absolutely is. And I was really struck by that um, back in the summer of 2019 when SpaceX launched those two astronauts up to um, the International Space Station. And it, it just felt like, you know, I wasn't around in 1968, but that, that year was horrible. I mean, with the Vietnam War, um, we had protests, we had uh, race riots, we had the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the assassination of Robert Kennedy, and, and then Apollo 8, miraculously, through hard work and ingenuity and genius, is they, they circle the moon. And it's the furthest that humans had ever gone. And the audacity of Apollo 8 circling the moon and giving that Christmas address. Um, you know, there's, as one lady put it, when Apollo 8 safely splashed down, she said, thank you, you saved 1968. And you know, that mm. echoed in my imagination in the summer of 2019, when I was seeing the Black Lives Matter, I, uh, you know, I grew up in the Twin Cities, so George Floyd, I mean, I know that intersection where he was murdered. Uh, and I'm watching this and I'm watching SpaceX and yeah, there is this, um, what was it Mark Twain said? He said, history doesn't rhyme, but it does echo. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I couldn't help think, I couldn't help but thinking about, yeah, this, this very interesting, this very interesting echo in time, as you put it. Um, but congratulations on the work. Um, I saw that you got a blurb from Tim O'Brien. That must be a thrill. Um, of course, the um, lauded author of The Things They Carried, which every um, freshman English uh, student has to read. Um, but it is, is one of my favorite books of all time, I think. But, but what, how, what was that feeling? Like, oh, do. I mean, the things they carried was, um, you know, we, if you're a writer, and I'm sure this is the, the true for you as, as well, Kelton, I mean, there are certain books that just have this seismic detonation in on your imagination. And the things they carried came to me at exactly the right point in my life, because I was uh, 20 years old. The first Gulf War was kicking off. There was no college draft deferral. I'm from Minnesota. Tim O'Brien is from Minnesota. Um, the things they carried came out in 19. 1990. I, I read it that year. I read it in one sitting and it just it, it blew open the doors of my imagination for a whole variety of reasons, not least of which because he came from Minnesota. And I thought, well, if he did it, you know, and Fitzgerald did it, um, you know, maybe this gives me license to dream. Hmm. So when I did get the blurb from Tim O'Brien, uh, it was it was kind of like uh, well, I, I met when the first time I met him, it was kind of like meeting the Beatles, you know. I was, I was trying to I was trying to be cool and smooth about it, but inside I was just like I I can't believe the demo <laughs> my car, you know. So <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Congrats on that one. Um, well, lots of great praise for for the shadow of Dora, of course. Um, yeah, when, when we talk about the Holocaust and then the Apollo program, one one represents the worst of what we're capable of doing to each other. The other represents the best of what we're capable of doing when we work together. Um, it seems like we're kind of also in that period in American history where we need to come to get, you know, where unity is being preached. And, and um, yeah, yeah, it's it's very, very interesting that, that, that this book came out when it did, of course. 
Um, I'll point to the book and listeners can find uh, I'll link to that in the notes and I'll point to your home base there. But yeah, let's talk about the incredible uh, research that went into the book and kind of your your research process, which I find pretty fascinating. Um, but you did quite a bit of travel, am I wrong? And you also got a grant, didn't you, to kind of uh, start the research process on this one? I, I got, yeah, I, I got... Um... I got three or four grants for this. Um, Amazing. Um, I got an article coming out in Writer's Digest about this, about how to use grants to fund my travel. But I, I felt I have very strong feelings that if I'm going to write historical fiction, I, I can't sit in my office and imagine what these places look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like I got to walk the soil. So with my first novel, you know, I went to the death camps of uh, Auschwitz, Treblinka, Sobibor, Belzec. And for this novel, I realized, well, I'm going to have to go to Dormittelbau, uh, which is in central Germany. Uh, and I did research in Berlin as well, because the main character grows up in Berlin. So um, I walked the streets of where he would have grown up so I could get a sense of what what that would look like. Um, and, and then I also went to the Kennedy Space Center, the Marshall Space Flight Center, which is where the Saturn V was built by Werner von Braun, and uh, Mission Control in, uh, in Houston, which was really extraordinary to step into that room where Apollo 11 was communicating with with uh, all of the, the men at the, the councils there. So the research took a total of maybe two years of uh, mostly summer research. I went in January as well, and I gather all of this information. And uh, then I put it into the book. I just fill up all journals and journals full of observations and ideas. And uh, as I was writing the, the novel, I would then refer back to my journal and then put pieces of information from the journal in, into the narrative as I was constructing it. Yeah. I want to talk uh, kind of about your uh, very kind of unique research process. I think every writer has a unique process, of course, but um, I tend to believe that kind of the analog piece of, um, you know, note taking and kind of doing that stuff by hand has a different kind of um, effect on the writing. Talk a little bit about your process and how you kind of capture the the feeling and the mood and kind of, as it's been described, kind of this... um, cinematic um affect i really i appreciate they use the word cinematic because t- uh, it blows my mind that uh in the shadow of dora is being considered by um you know uh, uh some studios right now that yes uh, optioning it for a limited series which is just crazy to me amazing uh, and gratifying and amazing and i'm really humbled by all of this um i didn't set out to write a cinematic story but i think that well, I know that uh, my ethos as a writer is that I really want the reader to feel like they're there. I, I believe very strongly that it's my job to hypnotize the reader and and put them into a place where they haven't been before, because that's what really good writing does. It's an, it's an act of hypnotism. Um, and you don't realize you're reading. I mean, if it's really well written, you forget that you're reading and you're at Hogwarts or Narnia or whatever. Mm. So I worked really hard to um, make the reader feel that they were in the secret tunnels of Dora, and that they were, you know, uh, in the presence of Apollo 11 as it's on the launch pad. And the only way that I could do that was by being there and then just taking a lot of notes. And and sometimes the notes I used, sometimes I didn't, but I would make a note of the kinds of birds and animals that I would see at the Kennedy Space Center. There are a ton of alligators there. uh, (laughs) You know, and there's a bald eagle nest that's been around for 50 years. But you know, and when I was in uh, the shadow of Dora, I was looking at um, the trees that are around Dora. I was, you know, thinking of the wildlife, the weather, 
Um, I did an awful lot of research with uh, reading memoirs of uh, men that had survived Dora Mittelbau. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I amalgamated and brought all of this together uh, to create the story. Yeah, yeah, amalgamated. Um, and then talk a little bit about um, your take on the research process and then kind of again i mean you mentioned the the memoirs of of survivors but talk about pov and kind of embodying the character as as the author yeah uh i take a lot of care to make sure that i get the historic to get it historically accurate because especially when i'm working with the holocaust i i feel a great responsibility to tell that story accurately and my feeling is that just because it's fiction doesn't mean I can make stuff up. Uh, I have to cleave very closely to, to history. So when it comes to point of view, um, I knew that the, the narrative would be inside my main character's head. Uh, his name is Eli Hessel. And I knew that that would be the through line of the entire narrative, that this would be the, the, the point of view that the readers would be with from the first page to the last page. Uh, for my first novel, I did something very different because uh, the commandant of Lubezic, uh, he's like the character that is in charge of a of a fictitious death camp, one that didn't exist but easily could have in the Nazi universe. And I made a POV choice there that the reader would be denied access to his inner thoughts um, because I wanted that, that sense of distance. Um, but when it came time to uh, focus on my Jewish characters, the readers have a full understanding of what's going on inside their heads. And the reason I did that is I knew that immediately I'd be setting up this sense of empathy for, for, um, for the readers, for my Jewish characters, which was fundamentally important to me with that first novel. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And then, and then the process kind of evolves for you as you're writing the book. Are you a, um, what kind of writer are you when you sit down to get pages and, and, um, you know, once you've done all the research, do you do a word count? Do you, are you somebody who kind of uh, will do sprints? Isn't it wonderful how we all uh, arrive at the same place, but through different <laughs> vehicles? Um, <laughs> I, I, I love this question. And I actually ask this of, uh, you know, my friends who are writers, because I'm just fascinated by how we all go about creating something that's similar, but we do it through such different ways. Um, I, I do have a word count uh, with with my fiction. I, I approach writing my poetry differently, but with fiction, whenever I sit down, I, I don't get up again until I've reached 750 words. Hmm. That's my target. Nice. And um, it works for me. So sometimes I blow past it and we'll do 2,000 words. Um, but one of the things that I try really hard to do is um, I if it's going well, I just keep going. But I, I always step away from the computer at a moment where I know what's going to happen next. And the reason I do that is because it makes coming back the next day easier because I don't have to sit down and go, now what? I, you know, I know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, interesting that you say sometimes you blow past, you hit 2000. That's when you're probably really in a flow state. Yeah. You have no other responsibilities or you're just ignoring the other responsibilities, which is fine. <laughs> Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. 
Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. But uh, yeah, I think something you said about how, how a story chooses you. And then of course, you're shining a light on a, you know, obviously a very dark time in history. Uh, talk about kind of that moral obligation that you feel as a writer to, yeah, you know, shine the light into the darkness. Yeah, I, I know it sounds mystical, but I do think that stories choose us. We don't choose stories. Um, I mean, I'm an Irish Catholic kid from a small river town in Minnesota. Um, I, I have no direct connection to the Holocaust, and yet here I find myself writing about it and, and returning to it. Uh, and I know the next book will be based on the Holocaust as well. Uh, and I don't, I don't know exactly why that is. I know that I was influenced uh, at a young age by it. And I've decided to quit fighting it. I think writers tend to orbit around similar topics all the time, and they just uh, kind of tell similar stories in, in different ways. Um, but one of the things that I appreciate about how the In the Shadow of Dora came about and, and the final product is that um, here we, if we look at the 20th century, the two, in my mind, the two most important events of the 20th century, the Holocaust and landing on the moon, um, they're both in some some deranged people say that they're hoaxes, that they didn't happen. Okay. Um, and I, I think that there's a reason for that because on the one hand, you've got the Holocaust, which I think a lot of people want to deny because it's just so horrifying to think that we're capable of doing that to each other. And on the other hand, you have this incredible moment of adventure and ingenuity that equally seems crazy. Yeah. Uh, so it's easier to deny these different poles of the human experience and one of the reasons that I, I really appreciate this book coming out when it did is that at the end of the book, uh, the main character thinks about what the nature of hoaxes, why people believe alternate realities. Mm. <laughs> and and I mean, the timing of the publication of this book with uh, the waning days of the Trump administration was it's it's uncanny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, alternative facts there you are, go. Yeah. are something that we never thought we would be so inundated with and um you know i guess we could talk about the big lie and uh the rise of nazism but we probably don't have time uh yeah but, but um yeah interesting to think that the parallels here are so striking and yet again um shining a light into the darkness of this age of uh human triumph is pretty pretty um Fantastic, and and it's uh, a it's a very cool dichotomy. Um, if that's uh, does that does that make sense? <laughs> I, uh, I I think so. I mean, I was um, I was struck by it. I thought I've never seen a story like this that that puts these two things in conversation with each other, and one did influence the other one. Uh, and they're both aspects of the human condition. And I'm I'm just so grateful for the feedback the book is getting. And um, uh, it's it's a real joy to see all of the hard work coming together, and um, you know it's been fun to zoom into book clubs and to college campuses and and talk about this, because as you know, I mean when the book is published, you become an ambassador for the book, mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, and it's I, I, I welcome that because in in both of the novels that I've written, I I wrote them intentionally as vehicles so that I could then talk about the Holocaust. Um, so yes, we talk about the book, but it's really important for me to, to, to help educate people about the Holocaust as best as I can. 
And if the book does that, that's that's great. But it gives me these opportunities in a public manner where I get to engage people with what happened uh, in in Europe between 1933 and 1945. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to read this Tim O'Brien blur because it's really fantastic. Um, this is a vividly detailed, terrifying, convincing, and completely spellbinding story rooted in those murderous events we now call the Holocaust. Patrick Hicks has accomplished a very a diff, let me take that again. Patrick Hicks has accomplished a very difficult literary task. He's given a believable and fresh and original face to barbarism. What a fine book this is. Of course, the book uh, we're talking about, In the Shadow of Dora by Patrick Hicks. Uh, you can find more information in the show notes. And I'll point at your home base there, patrickhicks.org. Um, yeah, man. Uh, do you have some... Um, kind of writers that you're going back to right now or that are just kind of stuck on your nightstand um maybe just some some ones you're really enjoying presently yeah that's the weird thing that i didn't expect you know when we dream about what we want to do in life uh and then we achieve it it's like two different things right so here as a kid i was dreaming about being a writer book tours you know contracts interviews and and it's wonderful that those things have come to pass but Man, I got to take out the thing that I never really considered is the friends that you make along the way mm. as writers. Um, because now, you know, books come out and I'm like, oh, cool. You know, this book's come out and, you know, I'm friends with this person. And I'm, I'm answering your question. It doesn't sound like I am. But, <laughs> but the books that I'm reading are books that have yet to be published. And that's kind of been my life for the past, I don't know, five or 10 years where mm. I'm, I'm asked to read, read, you know, for blurbs or, uh, you know, just as you know have an editorial eye or something like that so um what i'm reading right now is uh by a friend of mine called stephen wingate and it's called the leave takers and it's about these two people that are married that maybe don't want to be married and they're stuck in a small town of south dakota and they're not happy about being here and it is a great book it's coming out uh, in march with university of nebraska press and i'm just loving it nice nice cool shout out there for a friend for a fellow scribe um, before we wrap up with kind of your um, advice to scribes, and I know you have a lot um, on just how to persevere, let's do a fun one we do with most authors. Uh, if you could choose one author from any era for an all-expense paid dinner to your favorite restaurant in the world, post-COVID, of course. Oh, if, yes, of course, if, yeah. If that's a thing, I don't know <laughs> uh, if it is, but... Um, yeah, who would you take and uh, where would you take them? Man, yes. Oh, wow. How on earth do you answer a question like that? <laughs> um, well, I'll give you, this is my answer today. Maybe I'd have a different answer tomorrow, but um, uh, Ulysses by James Joyce, just, uh, it just uh, what an incredible book. I've read it so many times and uh, it has totally transformed how I think of writing and what writing can do. Uh, and I think it would be really fun to hang out with James Joyce, hmm. who could, could be a bit of a jerk sometimes. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I would, I think it would be that would be an amazing dinner, and uh, there would be an, a lot of alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> okay, where would you take him? Where would I take him? Um, oh, wow, where would I take him? Uh, you know, I'm gonna weasel out of that. I would, I would, <laughs> I would want him to take me somewhere because I nice. think it would be someplace where he used to live, like in Zurich or Trieste or Paris, and I could try the food at one at his favorite restaurant. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, 
What do you think you would drink with James Joyce? Oh man, uh, Guinness. Uh, yes, sure. clearly. Uh, I think red wine. Um, oh, and of course, whiskey. Irish whiskey. whiskey. Irish whiskey. Yeah. With James Joyce. That is a first on this show. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, let's uh, let's kind of wrap up with with you know I know it's a perilous time I think in history for um, authors and you know maybe the publishing industry for for the um, unrecognized or unpublished author, what would you say to just kind of the aspiring writer on just how to, how to keep going, how to keep their chin up and, and yeah. um, you know, stick with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's just it. The stick to itness, the, that sense of perseverance. And I, I have very strong feelings that um, I mean, you, you will get better the more that you write um, and the end goal shouldn't be publication. The end goal should be being good at being the best you can possibly be as a writer. So if you shoot for good writing first, I think publication is naturally going to follow. Uh, so I, I would, you know, maybe not rush, not see publication as the end goal, but um, just a, a nice happenstance of, of hard work that's paid off and artistry that's paid off. And then um, I, I think it's just really important to help other writers along the way, like what you're doing with uh, your podcast or I, I think that it's very important to uh, take care of the literary community. And I think um, good things happen because of that. When we lift each other up, I think we celebrate each other's work. And I, I am a, a huge, huge believer in, in celebrating the work of others. I love that. Celebrate the work of your peers. And uh, I celebrate your work, Patrick. Uh, you, I, I really think of you as a writer's writer. Um, and uh, yeah, congrats on all the stuff. Talk about, um, before we leave you, just kind of poetry from Studio 7. And I understand, I'll, I'll drop a link to that. Yeah. This, is, uh, this is an NPR um, syndicated program that you do with uh, poets, which is really cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and actually, um, I'm recording this in Studio 47 right now. So that's why it has the name uh, Poetry from Studio 47. And uh, it's a weekly show that appears every Friday. It's broadcast in North Dakota, South Dakota. Um, I'm working on Iowa Public Radio, Wisconsin Public Radio, and the, the Big Fish, Minnesota Public Radio, um, which is where uh, uh, National Public Radio really started. And the show is about two years old, and I'm having a blast doing it. That's awesome. Well, congrats on all the work. Keep it up. Um, we appreciate you stopping by. And um, yeah, come, by, come back and visit us again, and, and we'll talk shop. I'd love that. Thanks for having me on, Kelvin. I had, a, I, had a, I had a ball. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers out there find us. You can always leave a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.